Hello and welcome to Plain Talking. In this edition, we're going to hear the harrowing story of a pastor who was abducted in Malaysia more than five years ago, and his wife is now taking legal action to unravel the mystery of his disappearance. We'll also be thinking about Lent and the significance of finding God in the wilderness. But first, as the world watches the devastation and brutality inflicted on Ukraine by neighbouring Russian forces, religious organisations have voiced their opposition to this cynical use of force. I chatted with Marie van der Zyl, President of the Board of Deputies for British Jews, to talk about her work and also for her perspective on the crisis taking place in the Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, the Board of Deputies was formed in 1760 and we are the democratic representative body of UK Jewry and the government, the media or anyone else would come to the Board of Deputies in relation to any matters that affect the Jewish uh, community or any issues that need to be consulted with other members of the community. We're a nationwide organisation. We have 180 synagogues and 48 communal organisations. I am the second woman to be elected since 1760. I'm the first woman to do two terms. And I'm also the first person uh, who is also a member of an Orthodox and non-Orthodox community. So we advocate for the community. We've had uh, a lot of work in uh, recent years. Uh, in particular, there were uh, very well recorded uh, issues uh, with the Labour Party, concerns of huge concerns about anti-Semitism. But what's always been important and very close to my heart are interfaith relationships with other uh, communities in the UK and abroad. Marie recently met with Bishop Kenneth Novolovsky, Bishop for Ukrainian, Belarusian and Slovak Eastern Catholics, at the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral of the Holy Family in London. She did this to demonstrate empathy and support for the people of Ukraine. Marie presented Bishop Kenneth with a siddur, a compilation of Jewish liturgy as a spiritual symbol of friendship and solidarity. And I asked Marie to speak more about this gift. We, we really wanted to, to demonstrate solidarity and offer practical support and guidance. We realised that it must have been very, very difficult for, for, for Bishop uh, Kenneth. And I know that he uh, is getting ready to make the cathedral a crisis centre. And we wanted to meet him. We wanted him to know that we were here. But the particular prayer book that we gave uh, is edited by the late Rabbi Lord Sachs. And it was given as a spiritual symbol of friendship between our communities. And at this terrible time, with the very tragic events in the world, we think that that's very important that we demonstrate and show friendship. And it also came on the heels of a very successful, incredible meeting that I had a couple of weeks ago with Pope Francis. And as a community, we are absolutely committed to deepening our relationship with Catholic communities. So it was all, all part of this, but we are very human we want to just be there. We want him to know that he and the, the Ukrainian community are not alone. We want to do all that we, we can and to reinvigorate and inspire a deep working relationship and to provide whatever support we can, both to Bishop Ken personally and to the communities uh, and people that will be coming into the UK. I also asked Marie how the Jewish community in Britain was responding to the plight of the Ukrainian people. I mean, personally, I, I am traumatised, like 
like so many people, by the death and carnage. We cannot live in the modern era that this is, that this has happened. It, it's butchery. It's just unimaginable horrors. My own family, most of them were murdered in the Holocaust. My my grandfather came to the UK on the Kinder transport, and in fact, most of my descent, like like many people, my descent is also Ukrainian. I absolutely feel it. Because of the Holocaust, Jewish people always um, have that fear about being refugees. We have been refugees and we will absolutely help. This is something that we have absolutely um, advocated for. We've also tried to help the, uh, the Uyghur community. We've also tried to advocate recently uh, for refugees coming from uh, Afghanistan as well. And this is something that really is at the heart of our community. And there is an organisation called World Jewish Relief. It's a fantastic organisation that's doing an incredible uh, amount of work at the moment in the Ukraine and adjacent countries. But we will never forget as a community that we have been refugees. And it's in the lifetime of so many uh, people that are, are still surviving. So it has a huge, a huge impact for us. And further than that, as I've said, for me, my own descent is mostly Ukrainian. It's now five years since Malaysian pastor Raymond Koh was abducted in broad daylight on the streets of Malaysia. The pastor was kidnapped in a military-style operation in February 2017 and hasn't been seen since. Responsibility for his kidnapping, which was captured on CCTV, has been laid at the door of the Malaysian Special Branch. I recently spoke with Susanna, Pastor Ko's wife, who is holding on to the hope that her husband is still alive. On the 13th of February 2017, uh, my husband was driving along a suburban road in Petaling Jaya, Malaysia. And he was suddenly and violently adapted together with his car. And later we found a CCTV footage from one of the security cameras of a residence along that road. And it was really shocking because it showed a very professional and efficient operation involving seven vehicles and about 15 men. And some of them were in black balaclavas. And even one person was recording the whole event. But I thank God that there was a passerby, a car, an eyewitness who was trying to overtake the whole convoy. And so he came smack right in the middle of this operation. And later, he went and made a police report. And that was how we knew the location of the incident. So after this incident, we took a complaint to the Human Rights Commission of Malaysia because we realized that the police wasn't taking this seriously. They were not doing a vigorous uh, investigation. And uh, so in the end, after several months of uh, a public inquiry, the conclusion was that Pastor Raymond and another Shia Muslim 
uh, they were victims of enforced disappearance and that state agents were involved. And even though I have reached out to two prime ministers of Malaysia, as well as other politicians, we were not able to get any headway. It has been like total silence. And so the family in March 2020 decided to file a civil suit against the police and the government. And so right now we have our trial dates, which will be in uh, December 2022, as well as in June 2023. So Susanna, what a terrifying ordeal. It it sounds like an ordinary day. He's driving in his car and then the, the unthinkable happens. Would you tell us what your husband's plans were for that day? Where was he going and why was he such a threat to the Malaysian government, do you think? Oh, he was bringing uh, some food stuff to a friend of ours who uh, that morning was returning to his uh, home country. So it was on his way there that he was way late. And why I suspect that uh, it is... Uh, because Pastor Raymond was involved in social work, helping people uh, irrespective of uh, their religion or their uh, race. And a number of them, in fact, the majority of them were Muslims. They were single mothers who were abandoned and marginalized, uh, like we have uh, two homes that uh, work with people infected and affected with HIV AIDS. One of the lovely stories about your husband that I've been reading is that uh, I think one of your children quotes him as saying, you know, it's a good thing to to waste time spending Mm -hmm. it with people. Right. And I wonder if you, I mean, what a lovely thing to say. Uh, What a lovely thing for a father to say to their Mm -hmm. children. So tell us a little bit about your husband, about Pastor Raymond, Susanna, and his work, his ministry, and maybe why would a good man, a man of faith, find himself at the centre of some sort of government plot like this? Raymond is actually a very simple man. He say he can survive on three pairs of clothes, and he actually did that. He gave away the rest of his clothes <laughs> to the poor. And one time he even came back without his T-shirt because he gave away his T-shirt to a homeless man. And... He's very passionate for the poor because he he came from a, a, a poor background and he, he knows what it's like to have not enough, you know, to eat. And he have like 12 brothers and sisters, so they, they're kind of like fighting over for food. <laughs> mm. And uh, he, he is an ardent storyteller. He even makes up his own stories to tell the children before they go to bed or when he's bringing them to school or bringing them back, you know. And uh, he, he's like a live wire in, uh, in an event. He loves to play games and he will think of ideas, you know, what to do and how to make the, the party lively. So he's a very active person in sports. He plays Football with the teenagers, he was trying to set up a, a club, a football club for the dropouts uh, in the center that we established to help 
the poor children in their education. He's out there in the community and he believes that that can make a difference in someone's life if you believe in them and invest in them. As I'm listening to you, Suzanne, it's hard to see why someone who's devoted their life to good works and to helping others, why they should be the target of, of this. Is it possible to explain that, why your husband should have been abducted on a very ordinary day going about his work? Yeah, it is even shocking for me. And uh, in fact, the whole country, uh, when they saw the CCTV footage, modern and moderate country like Malaysia. And this uh, brings us to maybe the fact that there are certain sections of the population that are leaning towards extremism. And uh, maybe it is through the education or the teachings of a certain um, sort of gurus or certain religious teachers that have uh, kind of influenced them towards this extremism. I can only explain it <laughs> in that way. I'm, yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds terrifying. And I, you've had, you were having such a battle to find the truth. I was reading that you've, at one point, well, you, as, as you are doing now, you've, you've had to take a lawsuit out against the government and the police. And, and one of the members of the task force that was meant to look into this, it turns out, may have been complicit, may have been responsible, partly, for your husband's disappearance in some way. So you, you've had lots of battles to fight. True. Uh, it has been very challenging because Malaysia is a Muslim country, more than 60% are Muslims, and so the civil service, mainly Muslims, and so is the police force. And we are depending on the police to do the investigation. So we do not know how far, you know, uh, they are going to cooperate with this to find the, the kidnappers. Yes. So you've decided now to take a legal action out against the government, a lawsuit, and you feel this is the only way that you will find out the truth, finally, of what's happened. How is that going, Susanna? How is the lawsuit progressing? We have managed to submit the documents, the evidence to the judge, and there's still additional uh, documents we want to include. So pray for the lawyers and the fact that we actually could go ahead with this uh, mm. case wasn't like thrown out outrightly. I think that means that it, it is good news to me, at least. Yes. Do you think the truth will come out in, well, in this case? That must be your big hope. That you'll find yeah. out finally what has happened. True. At least, uh, if not the full truth, my hope is that we will have some truth what happened uh, because if the the police officers that are called to be witnesses, if they do not tell the truth, they can be in contempt of the court. So I think they will be hesitant to not to tell lies and mm. also to cooperate with the judge because this is a high court. 
Well, four years have gone by now since this awful beginning of a dreadful ordeal for you. Have you had any news of your husband's whereabouts or, or anything at all since then? Well, it's, it has been five years and we have not really got any news where he is or what happened to him. There have been like rumours going around that he's in some jungle or in some high security facility, but we, we really don't know. And I don't have the means to like go and find out the truth. It's, it's, it's being hidden. And how do you cope with this, Susanna, uh, on a very personal level as Pastor Raymond's wife with a family? Such a nightmare. I'm sure anybody listening to this would think this is amongst the worst things that could happen to a, a family and to a married couple. How do you how do you deal with this? I thank God for being with me. I sense his presence during the difficult times. In the beginning, it was really tough. Uh, I struggled quite a bit, but uh, God comforted me and gave me the strength and grace. You know, he promised that his grace is sufficient for us and uh, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And also the, the encouragement and prayers of the saints. Mm. And, uh, just uh, many cards, thousands of cards that I've received from US, UK, and many different countries in Europe and Asia, and even the uh, national believers here in Malaysia uh, have been a real encouragement to me. And of course, the international agencies uh, such as Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs have been in the forefront of bringing the story of our case to the public. And that I've been uh, really grateful for that. Well, thank you, Susanna. And I should also congratulate you. I mean, in, in 2020, you received the, the award uh, from the US International Women of Courage 2020. So you, your courage and faith and character have been recognized on the international scene. So bless you and thank you for joining with us today. Thank you for having me. God bless. Thank you, Susanna. And God bless you too. Thank you very much. And finally, some words about Lent and the wilderness. It will be Easter soon, but at present we are still in Lent, the 40 days leading up to Palm Sunday. It's a season where Christians have generally practiced things like fasting, prayer, contemplation and self-reflection. And Lent kicks off with one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It's the account of Jesus' solitude in the wilderness for 40 days, without food or drink. During this period, a shadowy figure, referred to variously as the accuser, the devil, or Satan, appears and makes three offers to him, all of which he declines. We could take a look at the significance of the 40-day period. Maybe it reminds us of the 40 years that the people of Israel spent in the wilderness after being released from slavery. Maybe it reminds us of Elijah fasting for 40 days and 40 nights when he's on the run from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. We could talk about it, but not today. We could think about the identity of this murky figure, sometimes called the devil. Who is he or what is it? What's going on here? 
Some commentators see this as a real encounter between two beings, the one an embodiment of goodness and the other an incarnation of evil. Some have seen it as a kind of hallucination. Jesus, weakened by lack of food and drink, is now part of a nightmare confrontation. Others, influenced by the writings of psychoanalysts such as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, have seen this as a kind of civil war within Jesus, between his conscious and unconscious self. We could talk about it, but not today. We could talk about the three temptations, the offer of bread to a hungry man, the offer of immortality and miracles at the pinnacle of the temple, the offer of influence and fame as Jesus surveys the kingdom of the earth. We could talk about it, but not today. Today I want to talk about the setting for this strange story, the wilderness, this barren, empty desert where Jesus is sent by the Spirit after his baptism. Instead of being catapulted to fame and influence, Jesus is driven to his own personal Sahara of loneliness. The Bible speaks of wilderness places in much the same way that we do. They are physical spaces that are empty, places of struggle and danger, but they're also a kind of metaphor for hopelessness and abandonment. And we understand the wilderness as a way of speaking about difficult times in our lives, when we feel alone or that God is far away, or we're going through a period of sorrow, or grief, or pain, the language of wilderness makes sense. And as we move through Lent, witnessing the invasion and harrowing of Ukraine by Russia, we are seeing both a literal and metaphorical wilderness take shape, a once beautiful and elegant landscape destroyed by the evil of military hardware. Homes, hospitals, schools, churches, reduced to rocks and rubble. Families and individuals devastated and displaced, plunged into the darkness of despair. Innocent lives killed by bullets and bombs. This rich and prosperous land of Ukraine is becoming, before our very eyes, a modern wilderness. Is there any hope in this story of Jesus? Or is it just a pointless preamble to the real action of Easter? I believe there is hope here. Jesus chooses the wilderness, this empty and desolate space, to launch his work of renewal and healing. There's a word to be spoken here, a word of hope for those under the brutal heel of tyranny and might. Three times he is tempted, and on each occasion Jesus says, It is written. It is written that good triumphs eventually, that God feeds broken lives, that worshipping God brings liberation and not slavery. May we all find a word of healing, whatever our wilderness, this land. Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talking and look out for the next one coming soon. Plain Talking is sponsored by the Plain Truth magazine, a magazine of understanding. To find out more, please visit plain-truth.org.uk. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Bye-bye.